When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. I came back, as you referenced, uh, from a from a breakfast at the White House and popped open my email. And a journalist said, "Did you plagiarize that column in your in your hometown paper?" And uh, I'll tell you, I, I fell down. Maybe collapse is a better word. I collapsed, uh, you know, next to my desk at the White House, and I prayed the following prayer: "Oh God, oh God." Uh, those four words, and uh, I was wrecked. Uh, and, uh, and because it was true. And I remember uh, we were a very close White House then and now, uh, very close colleagues who have become, I really mean this, uh, confidants and lifelong comrades. And uh, I was invited to a meeting and I walked into this conference room and they all had their you know, legal pads out. And you know, I was gonna delineate for them uh, you know, why this was absurd. And I remember uh, sitting there and I paused and I looked around at all, all these people uh, and I thought to myself, no, this stops now. We're not gonna circle any wagons. We're not gonna come up with the 10 point, whatever, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Two words that do not get said much in politics, but our guest this week, Tim Gegline, mustered the courage and character to say them. And that rare immediate honesty taught him valuable lessons that helped him move beyond his self-inflicted crucible. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. In his interview with Warwick, Gegline confesses how he on several occasions plagiarized the work of others for a column he wrote for his hometown newspaper while he was serving as a special assistant to President George W. Bush. You hear us talk often on the show about how forgiveness from others and to ourselves is a critical step to turning what's been broken into breakthrough. You'll want to listen to Gegline recount how the leader of the free world forgave him for his actions in the bad press they caused the White House. Gegline has continued to live a life of significance, serving as the DC-based Vice President of External Relations for the Christian nonprofit Focus on the Family. His top takeaway from his journey Failure reintroduces you to yourself. Well, Tim, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Very much looking forward to our discussion. And obviously, we'll get to your work in the Bush White House and now uh, focus on the family. But talk a bit about growing up in uh, Indiana and kind of your early career. So what was life like for young Tim as you kind of grew up and then uh, started your career before uh, the Bush White House? Mark and Gary, it's great great to be with you and actually a, a great honor. You know, uh, I have lived and worked uh, inside the Beltway for 35 years, 10 years as a press secretary 
Secretary to uh, U.S. Senator Dan Coats of Indiana, nearly eight years as a special assistant to George W. Bush, and almost 15 years as uh, one of the vice presidents at Focus on the Family. Um, said with humility and not with arrogance, I really am sort of like a potted plant. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which I always refer to as the center of the universe. Uh, much <laughs> of my extended family is still there. Uh, and I'm very close to my extended family. My best friend is my father who lives there. Um, and I, um, I've joked in other contexts uh, that, you know, even though I have uh, written, uh, you know, extensively, um, including three books, um, to be very candid with you, I, I think I would be a very bad novelist because I had a very uh, happy upbringing. Uh, <laughs> my, 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 my parents uh, married young and they married for love. Uh, they uh, raised us a, a wonderful family. Um, I grew up in a happy home. And uh, my parents uh, had a, a beautiful marriage of 62 years. And I really believe, above all, that uh, the idea of the combination of faith and family was quite genuinely the foundation uh, of the way that I grew up as a boy. Uh, I had the value uh, of having uh, aunts and uncles and cousins uh, very close by, grandparents very close by, very close to my grandparents. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm not ringing all the bells, but it really was, uh, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful upbringing. Uh, and long years later, when people ask me where I am from, I still refer to the Midwest. Uh, I'm a Midwesterner at heart. Uh, I love uh, the values and the people of the Midwest. And uh, above all, it is, it is faith uh, that shaped me uh, from, from boyhood. So talk about, um, you grew up in a, a, you know, a family of faith, but how did faith become real for you? Because the challenge for all of us who are believers is we want our kids to have the same faith as we do. So you can grow up in that environment, but my sense is you didn't just inherit it. Uh, somehow it became real for you. Uh, very much so. And uh, I, uh, I can say uh, categorically as a, uh, as a cradle Lutheran that it was very important in our family uh, that church was a constant uh, presence. It, it was not like a health club, you know, where you're where you're you're a member, but you you know you rarely go. We were as a family uh, very active in our church, uh, very young, uh, and uh, and I can honestly say this: my my mother overwhelmingly was the most important single influence uh, for faith uh, in my life. Um, she uh, uh, taught me very young uh, how important it was uh, to be uh, doing daily devotions, to read the Bible regularly. Um, my, my mother uh, was a, a remarkable woman uh, by any objective measure, uh, and she instilled in me and in my siblings uh, a kind of insatiable curiosity uh, about a lot of things, uh, about the liberal arts, uh, about, about big ideas, uh, she uh, herself was was interested in in, in everything from uh, opera to classical music, you know, to the American songbook. You know, this may seem a bit of an eclectic answer in one sense, Warwick, but in that, I think that my mother's faith was always very central. Uh, and uh, and I remember as a boy, she was uh, very very open, uh, uh, you know, uh, about her faith and the importance uh, of her relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And I think that when uh, when you have a mother and a father, uh, you know, who who are uh, faith serious and relationship serious, um, I think it's uh, often that the Holy Spirit works within that relationship because you're right. Uh, you know, our parents do not own us and our faith really ultimately has to be our own. So I, I consider that foundation one of the great um, blessings of inheritance from my mother and father. And my guess is growing up, faith wasn't just something that was espoused. You pro- it was probably uh, lived. So, you know, to me, character is, if you will, faith in action, uh, faith lived out. And so you probably, I'm guessing, had parents in an environment where they didn't just say they had values and beliefs, they lived those. Would that be true? You know, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that I've done a number of conversations, dialogues in my life. I've never <laughs> been asked that question. Hmm. Uh, and, and you honor me by asking it. And I'm, I'm, I'm eager to, if I may, to, to give you the answer. Sure. Um, if I live to be a thousand years old, I don't think I will ever meet other than my uh, wonderful wife of nearly 32 years. I, I do not believe that I will ever meet two individuals who had greater character uh, and greater integrity than my mother and father. Uh, they taught us uh, from a very young age that your character and your integrity is the coin of the realm. Uh, you know that that one of your great inheritances, uh, you know, is a good name. Uh, my my uh, paternal side of the family, the Gagline family has been a presence in Northeast Indiana uh, since before the Civil War. Uh, But on the maternal side of my family, uh, my mother was a first-generation American. Uh, My my grandfather, to whom I was very close and very devoted, uh, came uh, from the Balkans uh, through Ellis Island. Uh, And so my grandparents, in, in one sense, were very different. But as different as they were, this idea of character and integrity was instilled in us uh, a very young. So let's sort of fast forward. And uh, you started getting into uh, politics and was an aide to Senator Dan Coates and, and following. So talk about what got you interested in the political realm and sort of the pre-Bush uh, White House years. What was that career kind of evolution for you and what motivated you to go in that direction? You know, I, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be in broadcast journalism. You cannot make this up, but in the era where there were only three networks or four networks, <laughs> I remember regularly, uh, you know, um, making it a point never to miss the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Uh, what, what I thought was so incredible, even as a boy, uh, is that you could have these correspondents. They could be at the White House, they could be in China, they could be in Russia, they could be wherever. Um, but that they could distill and synthesize from they, wherever they were in the world uh, this kind of reportage that gave you a remarkable sense, you know, of the world. And I and I remember thinking, as a very young boy, wouldn't it be remarkable to be uh, in journalism? Uh, you know, to uh, to be able to have this congeries, you know, of politics, the press. Uh, and 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 public policy. It intrigued me uh, from a young boyhood. But I I can honestly say, uh, Warwick, that I I did not contemplate uh, going into politics uh, or or into public service per se. It was really always journalism. My favorite journalist of all time is my fellow Hoosier, Ernie Pyle, 
probably the greatest journalist of World War II, and of course was killed in the South Pacific. And I was very honored uh, to go to the Ernie Pyle School of Journalism at Indiana University uh, in Bloomington in my home state. Uh, I, I was that much of an admirer uh, then and now of Pyle. Um, and so, uh, so journalism was always going to be the thing. I did radio and television very young and studied journalism, uh, et cetera. And uh, when I was uh, a, a junior at Indiana University, and I mean quite out of the blue, a very good friend of mine said, you ought to be an intern in the United States Senate. And I, I foolishly said, I, I don't think I'd like to do that. I'm more interested. She said, you're making a big mistake. She said, go to Washington, have a summer, meet all these, you know, uh, young people uh, who want to change the world. Uh, and, you know, in that, she said, you might even meet a few journalists. Uh, and uh, boy, was she right. What wisdom. I came to be an intern for then the US, the youngest U.S. senator, uh, U.S. Senator Dan Quayle, who went on to become uh, vice president uh, under George H.W. Bush. And I had a wonderful summer came back to Washington the following summer to be an intern for an even more obscure Dan, Dan Coates of Indiana. And Providence cleared his throat. Uh, you know, I uh, was an, uh, an intern at NBC News here in Washington, graduated from Indiana University, became an executive producer at an NBC affiliate in my hometown. And lo and behold, a little over a year later, Dan Quayle became vice president. Dan Coates became the new U.S. senator of Indiana. And he phoned me and asked me to be his deputy press secretary. And I, I, I really do attribute all of that to 100 percent to providence and divine uh, intervention, because that was really not the professional trajectory that I was on. So talk about how you um, I think you had a. A stint with uh, Gary Bauer, I think, uh, maybe Family Research Council at the time, and then talk about how you uh, moved from there to uh, the Bush campaign and Karl Rove. So, how did that how did that evolution happen? And then you were appointed to a specific position with the Bush administration. Yes, thank you. I worked in the U.S. Senate for ten years, which is almost done heard of in dog years. That's about 9,000 years. Uh, no, um, and, uh, uh, you know, a decade, my heavens. And I, uh, you know, I was offered a very wonderful position when Dan Coates announced that he was retiring from the U.S. Senate. I was offered a very nice position at a foundation here in Washington. I hadn't accepted, um, but I, I, you know, it was a serious job offer and I was quite excited about it. And I went to see Dan Coates, uh, I think it was the last or almost the last time that we were together as colleagues, although he's a, a, a great friend and, and we are we then and now very close. I went to see him and uh, he said, you're making a big mistake. He said, you've worked at this end of uh, Constitution Avenue for this long. You really ought to be in one presidential campaign. And uh, I, I was really thrown by this. You know, he said, no, I, I think you ought to do it. It's the time it's the, the time of your life. This is the right time. Uh, you know, you're newly married. Uh, you know, uh, you don't have a ton of obligations. Um, you've had a great tenure here in the Senate. This is the time. He was pretty demonstrative. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, uh, again, divine intervention. A friend of mine was a consultant for a uh, for Gary Bauer. And uh, he came to me in almost the same time period. And he said to me, Gary Bauer is going to run for the presidency and he would like uh, you know, to hire you as a press secretary, communications manager. 
foolishly, I said the presidency of what? I thought he meant a marketing campaign. <laughs> you know, and uh, no, to be the president of the United States. Oh, okay. You know, and I thought to myself, no, wait a minute. This is a, a nascent campaign. Gary is a remarkably gifted communicator and debater. Uh, you know, this could be really interesting. Uh, and because it's such a small campaign, you know, uh, they want to make me the communications manager. And, uh, you know, I really uh, uh, had, uh, you know, uh, uh, great uh, respect for uh, for Gary. We got to be quite good friends and we remain very close friends. And so uh, we had a, a rip roaring good time. I mean, the Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primary. Uh, I had a chance to meet people from, from all the other campaigns. It was a uh, it was a fascinating year or year and a half in my life. And I would do it all again. It was really great. And uh, and when Gary uh, decided not to go on to get out of the New Hampshire primary, um, the, uh, the the Bush campaign reached out and said, uh, we'd like to have you come work for Governor Bush. And so Jenny and I and our very young sons, two sons, moved to Austin, Texas and uh, joined the Bush campaign. Lo and behold, we got to Bush v. Gore. 36 days. Nobody knew who the president was. I was in Florida for 32 of those 36 days. Big night of sleep was three hours a night. Mm. Nine cities. What a what what a roller coaster! And uh, of course, the Supreme Court affirmed that George W. Bush had won the presidency. And I thought, now I'm done with politics. And uh, you know, Karl Rove called me and he said the president would like to make you a special assistant to the president and a deputy director of the White House Office of Public Liaison. And I remember this weird pause after this telephone conversation because I thought. I said to Carl, you're going to have to tell me what that is, you know, and uh, Jenny and I prayed about it and I accepted the position. And of course, uh, it really did change our lives. And I, I can honestly say if working in the Senate for a decade was 7000 dog years, working in the White House for nearly eight years is about 10,000 dog years. Uh, you know, those are those are those are long days and short nights. And we had young children and uh if I never say it again in my life, I'm married to the most extraordinary woman who has sacrificed everything for me. I love her more today than ever. And uh, what a what a what a remarkably dynamic time that was in the life of our family. So before we get to, I guess, one of the defining moments towards the end of the Bush presidency, uh, my understanding is that uh, deputy director of um, the Office of Public Liaison was sort of. Uh, you know, you were Bush's right-hand person, if you will, for faith-based initiatives. So talk about just some of the highlights of uh, your time there and the things that you really most passionate about and felt like were really uh, rewarding and fulfilling. I was just with uh, President Bush in Dallas. He's now 77. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's remarkable because when I look back 23 years it seems like yesterday and then at another remove Warwick, it seems like 5,000 light years ago, you know, uh, how much the country, the culture has changed. Um, you know, uh, working for George W. Bush was genuinely one of the signal blessings of my life and being one of the deputies to Karl Rove, who was really, uh, you know, um, a, a remarkable then and now uh, friend and colleague uh, and an incredible uh, you know, architect, as he was called by President Bush, 
of the uh, two, the election and the re-election, had a major hand in policy and outreach, but he wanted me uh, to be the person who was the main go-to person uh, in, in the faith-based world uh, for all the veterans, for about a third of the major cultural institutions in the country, the think tanks, the public policy groups. Uh, it was uh, a remarkable portfolio. I had the blessing of working with three great directors of public liaison at the White House, and of course, uh, my friendship and admiration uh, for and with George W. Bush, uh, you know, uh, remains uh, just very, very important to me. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a time uh, that I say to young friends uh, who have a, a bent toward a vocation in public policy, uh, you know, steal yourself away from skepticism, steal yourself away from, uh, you know, cynicism, and think uh, in the best way about the nobility uh, of, uh, of public life, uh, that despite uh, the difficulties uh, that we're in, that we've gone through, that public life remains very admirable and a beautiful way uh, to spend a part of your life. So let's talk about the uh, email you got in 2008, which was a defining moment, maybe one of the most difficult in your life. So just talk about the email you got and what happened as a result of that email. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Just very recently, I was reading an analysis of Warwick of um, of the floods in Libya uh, and the uh, and the devastating, uh, you know, uh, earthquakes, uh, you know, in Morocco. And I was interested in this analysis because of the concept of crisis. You know, uh, how does crisis come upon a person or a family? Um, Indefinitely, I suppose, but I think there's at least two ways, and forgive me for being reductionist. Uh, one way is when you live in Libya and the dam breaks. Uh, you didn't design the dam. You didn't choose uh, for the dam to break. It's just that the water destroyed your house uh, and the people you love. You know, in Morocco, uh, you, you didn't plan, uh, you know, uh, for that kind of uh, of earthquake, uh, but the next thing you know, your business is missing, and so is your street. Uh, you know that's one kind of uh, of crisis. The other kind, uh, in my view, uh, is uh, is the worst kind. Uh, and I actually do delineate between good and bad crises because I think the crisis that I'm describing is the one uh, that that is fully rooted uh, in an individual's bad decisions, and that was my crisis. Uh, all my fault, no extenuating circumstances, uh, the crisis that I created and perpetuated uh, was to be blamed on the following, me, myself, and I. And, uh, and, that's, and, and that's the long and the short of it. I had been asked to write uh, some columns for my hometown uh, newspaper. Uh, and they said to me, you know, you're a, you're a great writer, write about anything you want, not politics, but write about all the other things you love. Uh, and I, I have a lot of things that I love. I, I love music. I love the fine arts. I love sports. I'm a tennis fanatic. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, evocations of people I've known and, and, and my hometown, et cetera. And people love them. You know, it wasn't because of busyness. It wasn't because of any uh, extenuating circumstance, busy though my life was. But I began to plagiarize. My sense was that, you know, 
Uh, I might be a fine writer, but, you know, I want to be Hemingway. I want to be Fitzgerald. I want to be Herman Melville. I mean, you know, people have said that's that's a nice piece, but wait a minute, you know. And I knew what I was doing. And plagiarism is a form of deception. And it was rooted uh, in a toxic sense uh, of, of pride, uh, malevolently so. I had become, uh, though a Christian, I had become very prideful. Uh, and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it. It's even uh, difficult for me uh, at this moment uh, to share this. But I, I really mean uh, prideful. And, uh, you know, if we had 10 hours, I could uh, go through a cavalcade of what I consider to be uh, shameful examples of the cancer that really is this kind of haughtiness, arrogance, and pride. And uh, I knew what I was doing, and I, and I did it anyway. And I came back, as you referenced, uh, from a from a breakfast at the White House and popped open my email. And a journalist said, did you plagiarize that column in your in your hometown paper? And uh, I'll tell you, I, I fell down. Maybe collapse is a better word. I collapsed, uh, you know, next to my desk at the White House. And I prayed the following prayer. Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, those four words. And uh, I was wrecked, uh, and, uh, and because it was true. And I remember uh, we were a very close White House then and now, uh, very close colleagues who have become, I really mean this, uh, confidants and lifelong comrades. And uh, I was invited to a meeting, and I walked into this conference room, and they all had their you know, legal pads out, and you know, I was going to delineate for them uh, you know, why this was absurd. And I remember uh, sitting there and I paused and I looked around at all, all these people and I thought to myself, no, this stops now. We're not going to circle any wagons. We're not going to mm -hmm. come up with the 10 point, whatever. Um, I'm guilty. And uh, I'm a low maintenance person, but I walked back, trembled back to my office at the White House, handshaking, and I wrote my resignation letter to George W. Bush. And I don't know if it is a word, uh, slunk. But I slunk out of the White House, so much so that the guards who I was used to seeing every morning going into the White House and going out of the White House every night, I could not even look them in the eyes. And I got home, and I'm very, uh, really ashamed to admit that my wife learned this not from me, but from someone else. Uh, and then, of course, our children were young. Uh, and uh, and I, I remember this terrible, terrible moment. Uh, we, we live in news-rich Washington. I knew that everybody then or soon would know about my infamy. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of divorce that takes place in politics. Uh, you embarrass the president. You embarrass the senator, the governor, uh, the member of House. You know, you are cut off persona non grata. And uh, that's fully uh, Warwick and Gary, what I expected uh, my rightful fate to be. I deserve that. You know, it's interesting you say that our paths have been very different, but I can sort of relate in, in one sense and just, you know, briefly, as listeners know, growing up in a 150-year-old family media business founded by a stronger business person for Christ as I've ever come across, wonderful dad, father, elder his church, employees loved him. I mean, it was an incredible legacy and come back from Oxford Harvard Business School, launched this $2 billion plus takeover and it failed spectacularly. And so, yes, it was front page news. And I felt like 
uh, you know, I don't think it was arrogance. Who knows? Maybe I think it was naivety and uh, an overly zealous uh, crusader, missional, you know, the founder was a believer, I'm a believer, you know, company needs to be restored to the ideals of the founder. And so when the company went, you know, bankrupt in 1990, I felt like I'd let my father down, who, who died a number of years earlier, who I dearly loved, my, you know, parents, uh, employees. I just felt like, how, I mean, I was just crucifying myself for being so stupid and naive and uh, making cataclysmic mistakes. So my default is if there's something wrong in the world, I blame myself. You know, that's just mm. like my default. So I, I was years in self-crucifixion mode. So I know uh-huh. there was redemption and forgiveness, which we'll talk about, but just talk about those initial thoughts. Were you in self-persecution mode? I mean, what, I mean, how did you handle what happened just personally and emotionally and spiritually? Uh, you know, uh, I suppose it's because of, you know, as I said at the top of our conversation, living and working inside the Beltway for so many years, uh, and being a part at that in those years of the of the you know broadly speaking political class, but you know um, I uh, I achieved the triple crown, uh, which is that the banner on Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN had me uh, as the guy. So, uh, I was uh, after all uh, you know the President Bush's faith based guy, uh, Christian, a conservative, and look what I had done. You know uh, I I think it's fair to say. And 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 my uh, my critics, uh, as they were, uh, and my friends, they they had a right to say, uh, "Gosh, you served yourself up on a platter, you know. Uh, you 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 confirmed every stereotype of hypocrisy." And uh, what in the world have you done? Uh, I remember uh, vividly, uh, and again, this is painful, uh, but I remember vividly coming into the White House uh, after all this had happened, after my resignation. And I began to take the pictures off the wall and, you know, uh, clean out my desk. And uh, I'm not sure that I had spent my entire life looking for the perfect Christian. As with all of us, I'm sure, men of faith, you you, you love meeting people of great integrity, uh, people whose uh, body of ethics is granitic and unchanging. And you have this unwavering sense that you've really met a, a person of great virtue. And I found that person uh, actually uh, in a in a reformed uh, Jewish colleague who happened to be uh, the chief of staff, Joshua Bolton, and he reached out to me uh, on that day, my first, my infamous day back at the White House, and uh, he uh, phoned me, and I thought, oh boy, and he said, uh, uh, you know, how are you doing, and so forth, and uh, um, he uh, asked if I could. Uh, could come over and see see the boss. Now, if it's good news at the White House, it's that the, the president would like to see you. But if it's if it's bad news, if it's the woodshed, get ready to meet the boss. And I remember going over to the West Wing for a very brief meeting with Josh Bolton, who <laughs> could not have been better. Um, it's uh, it's actually difficult in another sense to talk about this uh, because uh, his sense of empathy and uh, and sympathy. Uh, was uh, leagues deep. And then uh, it was time for me to go see the president. And I expected, uh, you know, to there to be kind of a cavalcade of staff uh, to, you know, really run through my public uh, shame and sin. And I was, you know, not prepared for it, but I knew it was coming. And I also knew that I deserved it. 
And I got to the Oval Office and uh, there was no one there. And I heard uh, the president say, Tim, is that you? Please come in. And I thought to myself, this is going to be really bad. Uh, This is just the boss and me. And I walked into the Oval Office and then he said, please shut the door. And I thought, ooh, this is, you know. And uh, we, we kind of met. We were both standing in the middle of the Oval Office. And uh, I looked him straight in the eyes. And I'm sure that since I hadn't slept in three days at that point, that, you know, bags under the eyes and et cetera. And, uh, and I, you know, looked at the president and I said, Mr. President, I owe you. And before I could finish my sentence, he looked at me and he said, you're forgiven. And I was quite certain that I had not heard him properly. Uh, it was a very surreal moment. And I, I remember pausing and catching my breath. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to start again. And I said, Mr. President, and before I could finish that sentence, he said, you know, Tim, he said, grace and mercy are real. He said, uh, uh, I've experienced them in my own life. And uh, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, you know, I, I really couldn't believe it. And on the third try, I guess in good Trinitarian fashion, I said, Mr. President, <laughs> I, I, I owe you an apology. I said, uh, you have given to Jenny and me and our sons uh, the greatest professional opportunity of a lifetime. And uh, I've let you down. And I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Uh, it's, it's my fault. Please forgive me. And he says, you know, Tim, uh, I'll say again, he said, grace and mercy are real. You're forgiven. And then in very good George W. Bush fashion, he said, now we can talk about all this if you'd like to, or we can talk about the last eight years. He said, we have been uh, you know, through some very substantial things together. And I thought to myself, wars, rumors of wars, Hurricane Katrina, Bush v. Gore, you know, and uh, and then he said to me something equally amazing. He said, why don't you sit down, sit down? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, what? You know, you know, whether you're a person of the left, the right, the Democrat, the Republican, none of the above, all of the above. This this does not happen. Right. This does not happen in the U.S. presidency. And he asked me to sit down in the chair of honor where the vice president sits during Oval Office meetings or heads of state or an honored guest, you know, not uh, an aide who has resigned uh, after something like this. And we sat there and we, we, we spoke about the last eight years and uh, we prayed together, stood up. And I remember looking around the Oval Office and now I'd like to be very direct in answering both your last question and this one, if I can marry them together. I realized in that moment that I had violated every single thing that my parents and grandparents had taught me about character, about integrity, about a good name. And, you know, I, I had a mixed emotion of grace and forgiveness and this profound sense of what have I done? And I was leaving the Oval Office, thought this was the last time I would see the president. And before I was barely out the door, he said, oh, and by the way, Tim, I want you to bring your wife and children here next week so that I can tell them what a wonderful husband and father you've been. 
And sure enough, he invited us to the Oval Office the following week. Uh, no mention of this. Then or now, we've become wonderful friends. He invited me back to the White House. He invited me to, uh, you know, to the ceremony at Andrews Air Force Base when he departed Washington. And uh, he really meant what he said. You know, uh, there are endless forums, panels, and conversations on faith and public life and how they mix or don't mix. That day was the purest sense for me of how, at its height, Christians in public life can find space to relate to one another. It was a remarkable moment for me and, frankly, allowed me to begin the process of healing. I, I want to move on here um, just in the last few minutes to what you do now, but I want to just dwell briefly on what you said because uh, without, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, pouring salt on the wounds, you and he realized this was a big deal. The world, so to speak, loves to show uh, that Christians are hypocrites. I think of my least favorite quote, which is by Gandhi, I like your Christ, not so much your Christians. I hate that because there's an element of truth in that. You know, the world, the media is looking to say, you know, these Christians took a good game, but they're all about to hypocrites. So what you did was obviously very damaging to that but also to George Bush personally. You know that, he knows that. But despite everybody fully being aware of that, that level of forgiveness in that moment and that forgiveness being demonstrated years afterwards and reaching out in friendship, very few politicians, again, forget the policies for a moment, but the character of a man that would forgive somebody, even though what you did was damaging to the cause, that is, it, it just sort of, it makes no sense. You know, he had every right. I mean, forget it was you. Anybody in his position had every right to say, this is really going to hurt. It's going to give my enemies lots of ammunition. It's going to be lasting for a long time. I mean, that's staggering. Don't you think that level of forgiveness? I do. I th- and staggering is precisely the right word. Uh, you know, Mark Twain has that quip. Uh, you know, the difference between the right word and the nearly right word is like the difference between fire and a firefly, you know. Uh, <laughs> you, 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 you've used precisely the right word. Um, and I'd like to be, if I may, I'd like to address that very directly. George W. Bush has never said this to me. Uh, but what I have learned is that uh, failure uh, reintroduces you to yourself. And the idea that somehow you can click down a list uh, to to forgive yourself or redeem yourself or reconcile yourself or whatever, um, I I mostly negate that. I think that the forgiveness that I was shown was a very pure form of Christian grace. And as I said earlier, uh, you know, in, 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 in holding up a mirror to myself, and realizing that I had failed spectacularly because of, of my own actions uh, was for me an inflection point. And the question is, how does a person who also happens to be a Christian move forward? Uh, and I had the blessings and benefit of very close friends who came around me and could care less about former titles, about professional success, whatever. It just didn't matter because Jesus doesn't care about all those things. They saw me as a really wounded brother in Christ, and they ministered to me 
in a rather remarkable way, as did my own pastor. Uh, uh, and I will never forget that. So it's a combination of, I think, being honest uh, about your failure and then being uh, very candid about how you want to move forward. And I think uh, in the Christian life, it involves this deepening of a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, and the way that he uses the people around you. Uh, in my instance, my wife, my children, my family, those that I've shared with you, very important. I'm going to enter the conversation now, Tim, because I enter your story at this juncture of your story. Um, because what happens to you next, just to set the time frame uh, of all this, the the plagiarism incident was March 2008. That's when the newspapers and TV stations all blew up. In January 2009, you right. were hired by, by Focus on the Family as the Vice President of External Relations. I was also at the time a Vice President of Communications at Focus right. on the Family. We were prepared, me as vice president of communications, were prepared that there would be some people that might, based on everything that we've talked about, question focus on the family. I want to read to you in case you haven't remembered it or it, it's been a while, what Jim Daly, the president of focus on the family then and still today, said in his statement to the press in announcing your hiring, because it speaks to exactly what you talked about, what you've talked about this whole show, that forgiveness is real, and that, and that character matters. This is what Jim said about you. Tim has been forthright about his mistakes and humbly accepted the consequences of them. A pretty rare thing in Washington. He is a Christian, and being a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect. Only that there is grace and forgiveness when you confess your imperfections. Tim has done that, and we welcome him to our team enthusiastically. I don't know if you remember those words, but I do. As you hear those words now, how did that, how did this, we call them bounce backs here on Beyond the Crucible, right? You're, there's your, your, your crucible experience and your bounce back from that. How did that being hired by Focus, Jim's outreach to you, Jim's, what Jim just said there, how did that impact you and set you up for what you're doing now? Well, even as you uh, reshare those uh, really beautiful words, you know, a person becomes, you know, uh, misty-eyed. Uh, and I, I remember it uh, quite well. And and, and I'll tell you, uh, I'd love to, again, be very precise. I remember the statement. And as you may or may not remember, Gary, I, I had no idea that that statement was being prepared. Right. Uh, you know, in the, in the best sense of focus on the family, it wasn't run by me. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're a Christian ministry and this is what we believe. Uh, but when I read when, when I read it, I, I had a profound and I mean this a profound sense of humility uh, that you really that in the Christian life, uh, you really can start again. Uh, and that and that not always, but often starting again means having uh, someone or someones who believe in you and who frankly are courageous enough to say, yes, we can we can restart. We want to be a part of a uh, uh, part of the way forward about uh, if I may say, uh, you know of the, the the next chapter. and next chapters are really important in the Christian life. And so I I, I remember then and now uh, the, the profound sense of, gratitude and thanksgiving I had to Jim Daly and to focus on the family, because then and now it was my favorite ministry. 
Uh, and uh, I, I'll, I'll never forget those words. And of course, Jim Daly has become a great friend and a great colleague. Uh, and is is uh, actually, I believe this. I think he, he's he's the best of us. And uh, and I think that uh, in a country of success and failure, it's wonderful to be associated with a ministry that 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 demarcates uh, grace and mercy at the center. So, Tim, that's remarkable. Uh, just a closing question: As you look back on your experience, what lessons do you take uh, from yourself, and what lessons would you offer for others who? maybe being in that situation, maybe help them avoid that situation. And if they can't avoid the situation, how you bounce back and forgive yourself. So kind of a lessons learned question. Uh, how, what, what would your take on that be? You know, when I was going uh, through this kind of blizzard of a, uh, of a crisis, uh, I had a woman who I barely had known, but had met me one time at the White House. And we had had a, a very nice conversation and uh, she had remembered that. I had forgotten it. And uh, she phoned me. And I had not remembered her or this conversation. But she had remembered that we had spoken in the White House about how important uh, C.S. Lewis's writing had been to me. And she said, I'd like to make a recommendation. She said, I'd like to offer that you please read C.S. Lewis's essay, The Inner Ring. And I, I, I thought I had read most of Lewis, but I had never heard of or read The Inner Ring. Uh, undoubtedly, both of you know the power of this, of this essay, which deals uh, in a very frontal manner with the, uh, the acidic nature, the toxic nature, the malevolence of pride. And not only with that, with the subject of pride, but the subject of, of, of getting entwined and getting, uh, uh, you know, befouled by making, uh, you know, uh, finding a place in the, in the inner ring of any organization as your top goal, much less in life. And if I have read that essay once, I've read it now a hundred times and I've recommended it. And I, and I mentioned this in closing because uh, I uh, have had the blessing of having people who have found themselves in very deep crisis, and they have uh, been able to come to me as somebody who can be empathetic, who's been through it, and to share with me, you know, really remarkable failure, and looking for the way forward. Many of them non-Christians, and in, in addition to being able to minister to them, praise God for that. I pray for that. Uh, but I have recommended this essay, and to a person. With no exception, they have come back to me and have said that almost of all the things they've ever written, uh, read, that that Lewis's inner ring is an incredible evocation um, of misplaced priority as it relates to pride and failure. And uh, and I and I recommend it again because I hope at least one person who's listening to us uh, who may be looking for this kind of consolation or insight would benefit from such an essay. Tim, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time and your story of vulnerability, courage, redemption, forgiveness. We're all imperfect. We all make mistakes. And just your model of contrition, uh, redemption, forgiveness, we always say on Beyond the Crucible that your worst day doesn't have to define you. That day in 2008 was obviously your worst day. 
I would imagine that day does not define you, and neither does my worst day. So just thank you for your courage and vulnerability and your story. Thanks so much for being here. Well, it's been a real blessing to be with you. Be of good cheer, and thank you uh, so much for this. Because Tim is indeed in the Beltway, works in Washington um, for Focus on the Family and goes to Senate and Congress and, and, and sees what's going on there, reports back to Focus, testifies sometimes, he is on a tight schedule. So he did not get the opportunity, listener, to tell you how you can find out more about the work that Focus on the Family does and what Tim does. And that is at the website, focusonthefamily.com. So you can find out more about the organization and about Tim's work there by just kind of exploring um, the, the, the myriad things that are available on that website. But we want to thank you for spending time with us today. Uh, and we want you to know this, that um, your crucibles, uh, we know they're painful. And Tim's really hit home, not just on the pain, but I hope you noticed he was, he was talking about pain. And it's been some years, uh, but he wasn't talking about it embarrassingly or dejectedly. He was talking about it uh, on the other side. He was talking about it not as the man who, in his words, collapsed by his desk when uh, the jig was up. He's talking about it about a man who has received and given himself forgiveness. And Warwick talks about it often on the show, the importance of forgiveness in moving beyond our crucibles, the forgiveness of others, forgiving others, and forgiving ourselves. So I hope that came through loud and clear in our conversation with Tim Gagline. And I also hope uh, that you realize, listener, that your own crucible experience does not define you. Uh, as Warwick says often, your worst day doesn't define you. It, it, it doesn't have to be your worst day forever. Um, or that day doesn't have to continue to repeat itself. It's not the end of your story, your crucible. It can be, it can be the beginning of a fresh story, a new story. Tim described it himself. Warwick has described it on most episodes of this show. He's living it every day as the founder of Beyond the Crucible. That your crucible experience, when you learn the lessons from it, can become the start of a, of a new chapter in your story. And that chapter can lead to the most rewarding place you ever want to go to, and that is to a life of significance. enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.